diving into data. Diving, diving, data. Diving into data with TC Riley. Hello, everyone. Welcome into another episode of Diving Into Data. We've got TC Riley here, and joining me today, um, our normal host Tyler's out on the road doing some stuff. So, we've got Ben Thomas with me today. Stayed in studio. Absolutely. So, keeping it in the family here. But, um, got an exciting episode for you guys today. Um, ben was tying in a little bit of timeliness. So, we'll, we'll touch on that, especially uh, our middle story here as we break into the energy industry and how um, data and analytics are impacting that. Um, but we're going to sandwich that. Um, always start off with our sports story, and uh, we're going to be looking at the MLB offseason and analytics. And um, we've talked in the previous episodes about some on the field analytics. So, we're going to talk a little off the field analytics. Um, then, we're going to wrap it up with one that there's been a lot of discussion amongst uh, some of the groups I follow, uh, some of the LinkedIn groups, things like that, around people analytics. Um, so we're going to talk about what that means, um, whether you like it or not, how it can be used, whether it should be used, all the stuff like that. But without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into our first topic here, MLB offseason analytics. So what we've talked about in the past when it comes to baseball is much more um, reactionary, I would say. So it's looking at things um, where... Um, certain stats can be used to say, okay, well, we need to improve the team in this, um, or even maybe um, a live time. So things that, okay, um, this pitcher has this much better against left-handed batters who don't hit the curveball well, or whatever it may be, maybe a coaching decision kind of in the moment in the game. But something that was a little more interesting to me, I read two cool stories this week about how analytics are playing a massive part in this MLB's offseason. And so the first story um, is all rotating around a free agent, Marcelo Zuna, um, who's an outfielder. He's a, a very good player. Um, he's someone who had a breakout back in 2017, had a really big year, I believe with the Marlins, if I'm not mistaken, um, before he moved up to St. Louis. But um, he had a average last two years, let's say 2018, 2019. It wasn't terrible by any means. Definitely, you know, an above uh, average replacement player, but um, didn't exactly crush it or kill it to the point that he's, you know, leading the market this offseason. But him and his agent did something that I absolutely love. They looked around baseball. They said, what is every front office doing? They have a team of guys kind of like me sitting in the back there, crunching the numbers, looking at all these incredibly advanced statistics and models and things of that nature, looking at um, all these advanced analytics to kind of help build the team and to decide, you know, uh, where contracts should be, uh, where money should be spent on contracts that uh, things of that nature. So what Marcel Zuna and his agent did was they built a 43 page packet of advanced stats as to why he is a great investment for teams. Um, it's really, really cool. It's looking at things like, yes, okay, pretty much what their point is, is, okay, we struggled a little bit when it comes to batting average, on-base percentage, home runs. Um, again, above league average, but not absolutely killing it. Uh, we know that. But here's the reason why our client's actually a lot better than what those kind of surface numbers will tell you. They really looked at his exit velocity where – um, again, batting average kind of ranks middle of the league. Exit velocity, he's in the top couple percent of the league. Um, again, for those of you who aren't familiar with baseball, exit velocity um, very strongly correlates with 
um, power, um, ability to hit the ball hard, hit the ball into the gaps. Um, so being able to kind of call out what they're able to do with the exit velocity um, and how uh, that's almost, um, if you remember back, regression to the mean was one of our terms a couple weeks back. Um, that pretty much what uh, they're saying there is based on this exit velocity, I really think that um, better things are ahead than what we saw this year. This year is a little bit of an outlier. Um, he's going to positively regress up to the mean and be back to being a 300 plus hitter. Um, hopefully get up those home run numbers up. Um, a couple of the other ones, um, batting average on balls in play, not necessarily an incredibly advanced statistic, um, but another one that kind of showed that um, frankly, he got the raw end of the deal a lot of times this year. He was hitting the ball hard. He was hitting the ball well. He was just hitting it right at the defense. Um, that happens sometimes. Obviously, it's a big sample size of a season that could still um, be a little bit of an outlier. So um, what Marcelo Zuna uh, and his agent have done is really taking an advanced look at how teams are looking at players and actually kind of flipped the script on him and said, well, hey, you guys care about this. You're looking at this. Um let us build you a packet of all the reasons that these advanced analytics say my client's great. Um, the only kind of, uh, I guess, uh, thing you need to be a little bit aware of here um, is just like we've talked about being selective with data. And if you're not careful about what you include, obviously, if you are a player and as agent, you are going to include those advanced stats that um, look favorable for your client. You're probably not going to publish a lot of stuff that says, oh, look at this. He's actually outperforming what he should be doing. So um, obviously, I'm sure the teams are going to have those additional statistics. They're going to be able to look at the other end and kind of see if they're maybe framing some stuff. Um, framing effect. It's going to be a term in the coming weeks. There's a teaser there. Speaking um, of baseball framing. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> Appropriate, right? Um, but I still just think it's really cool that him and his agent have kind of taken this initiative and said, okay, we accept where baseball is going, um, what front offices are doing. We're going to play this game too. It is. You're right. It is really, really cool. And it's interesting to see really, you know, it's a great PR move if nothing else. I mean, if, if the yep. guy, you know, even if his stats are subpar i mean providing a potential employer with what amounts to being one of the most detailed resumes you can offer i think it's it's a pretty pretty decent move i will say though it it doesn't include a lot of the uh fastballs versus changeups faced and he could like he could have been you know mm -hmm. in his, you know his division pitchers could have been on average 7 to 8 miles an hour faster on their fastball and that's that's where you start getting to some of the really interesting granular data right i mean his exit velocity was about 95 miles an hour i think is what it is what it was on average but I don't know. It, it's 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 tough to read into because yes. sports, obviously, there are so many intangibles and you want to quantify as much as you can in sports. And that's why people run into shifts and stuff. And the shift, for the most part, has worked great for teams like the Astros, who just do gigantic shifts and uh, always get Joey Gallo out on my Rangers. But, yeah, yeah. you know, it's 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 tough. It's great. You know, it's great to see that somebody really is taking the initiative and saying, hey, you know, we've we've kind of done a deep dive on our statistics, but, you know, really, really, it, it feels like he's framing a lot of stuff yes. here. He absolutely is. And again, uh, the, realistically, um, you could probably build a 4,000-page book of advanced stats on Marcelo Zuna if you really wanted to. They included those 40 pages that make them look the best. But um, yeah, it, realistically, uh, we've talked about data paralysis a little in the past. I think um, – Baseball might be heading a little bit too deep down the rabbit hole to where, um, especially front offices are making some decisions that, okay, we understand that this stat supports this. Um, 
we're to the point where you have 15,000 other stats that you can look at, which right. probably say everything from he's the worst player to every play baseball to um, he's a second coming of Babe Ruth. You know, it, so yes, you can probably find that one stat that always looks good. I, I, I love the, I call it the ESPN method of, oh, he is the youngest player to ever get 13, you know, rebounds right. and t- exactly four steals on, you know, 32 minutes. The, the, first, the first player to do it before noon on a yes, Tuesday. Exactly. And it's like oh, Co- conditional coincidence is what I like to call it. Yes, that, that's 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 fine and all. And OK, he's great. But um, but again, I, I'll say if nothing else, like you said, good publicity move. Good for him for taking the initiative. Um, if nothing else, maybe it gives him a step ahead of the guy who's walking in. Um, with the, the agent who's walking in with his client just saying, well, you know, um, look at this film, look at the tools in this guy, look at these biceps, you know, that kind of thing. So um, there's something to say for that. And uh, I also, we're, we're not going to go too deep into it today, but you brought him up, so I can't help but mention um, that good old team down there and the, uh, as us DFW sports fans call it, the armpit um, down there in Houston. Um, mm. uh, they're... Uh, Maybe mm. they don't need to worry about the shift right now. Maybe they need to worry about shifting some of those uh, cameras, video yeah, yeah. connections. And yeah, um, we uh, again, we, we won't dive too much into it other than to say as Rangers fans, um, I fully support Rob Manfred's ability to punish teams outside of just fines. And uh, uh, we'll see where that story leads. Maybe we'll, we'll dive in a little deeper on that in the future. That one's harder to quantify with data. So we'll just reserve our opinions. We have opinions, but mm-hmm. we'll reserve them. We'll keep those in the pocket for now. Um, and before we move on to sports, there was a, one other cool little sports story I wanted to touch on relating to baseball and analytics. Um, the Yankees made a pitching coach change this offseason. Um, they hired Matt Blake, um, who, if you have no idea who Matt Blake is, well, welcome to the club. I, I honestly didn't really know who Matt Blake was either. Um, but they picked him over David Cohn. And the reason this was interesting to me is David Cohn, name I found familiar to some of you baseball fans, um, pitcher back in the day. Um, I'd say he's a little bit of a baseball lifer, a little more old school. You know, I, I see it with my eyes. I know what the right thing is type of guy. Um, Matt Blake is an analytics junkie. Um, he grew up pretty much in baseball, in baseball analytics, um, worked with a couple minor league staffs and was very successful with them. Um, took some guys probably above and beyond what was ever expected from them by using these numbers and using them frankly, to an extreme. Um, But I read an interesting article how one particular pitcher on the Yankees, James Paxton, um, could benefit the most from this. Um, James Paxton, someone who I guess historically has not done an awesome job, um, has gone a little too much gut, not enough numbers. About halfway through the season, the Yankees, um, who are a very uh, analytics-driven organization, uh, credit to them, um, kind of changed some of his pitch volumes, looking at throwing the curveball a little more, staying away from um, some of his off-speed junk pitches that he has, the slider and changeup that haven't really been successful, um, kind of optimizing that. And that was just a small tweak, literally in just a kind of the how often are you throwing pitches. That's all that really changed this year. And James Paxton had a massive improvement throughout the year and was doing really, really well towards the end of the year. Um, so what I'd be interested to see is a guy like that. Um, and then, of course, for the rest of the staff, what is Matt Blake going to be able to do with him? Is he going to be able to replicate what he was able to do at some of the lower minor league levels where maybe it wasn't really an even playing field? If you were the one minor league pitching coach really diving into data, um, especially even like five years ago, you probably were the only one diving into the data. Um, and it just it was really interesting because the Yankees pretty much made a decision that we're going to go with a guy that we kind of accept doesn't know as much about baseball as this other guy over here. But he knows these numbers. He knows how to manipulate those and use those. Um, so I'm curious to see, even though we've seen a little bit of a swing in the MLB in the last few years towards um, retired players becoming managers, the Carlos Beltran this offseason with uh, the Mets, for instance, um, 
that's been a big thing, guys, almost directly retiring, going into a managerial role. In 10 years, are we going to see people going right out of their, you know, PhD in advanced statistics into a managerial role? You know, is that culture going to shift where the front office culture has changed? Um, Charrington, the, the new GM for the uh, Pirates who just came over from the Red Sox, big analytics guy. A lot of the front office is kind of populated with analytics gurus now. How long until that trickles down into that dugout? Um, is Matt Blake one of the first signs that we're going to start really seeing that happen? I think so, TC. I think it really is because especially with pitchers uniquely, I think pitchers really should be relying on data more than any position in the field, right? Because you – and this this is unique to baseball. Baseball, you play the same team probably 25 times a year. Yep. Yep. Right. And in, in another sport, at most, you're probably playing somebody 10. Yeah. And, you know, you want to talk about the law of averages. If you play, you know, any team in, you know, the American League West, you're going to see the same guys consistently on the regular on a regular basis. So you're going to not only I mean, you're going to be able to feel their tendencies from a gut perspective, but you're also going to know their numbers and their numbers against you and your team. Right. In your ballpark, you, you have, you know, quantifiable numbers that say Mike Trout does not hit well to right field when we throw him a, a cutter away yep. consistently. And you should, you could say that very consistently and it's provable because you have video evidence, you have data evidence. And I think that's why, especially with pitchers in baseball, pitchers have to be able to analyze data, anything from release angle to, you know, Mike Trout doesn't like his fastballs away, but you know, I'm interested in this approach. It's very money ball esque. Yep. No doubt. Absolutely. Uh, but I think it's going to work because, I mean, you really, really start to pick up on hitters' tendencies, where they like the ball, their sweet spots, what's your best release point. If you're injured, do you throw your cutter a little bit crappier than you would if your elbow isn't sore today, yep. right? Yep. So, and those those are things that you can kind of quantify. You know, you can go back as a pitcher and say, hey, I was recovering from an injury uh, on this day, probably rely more on my fastball uh, and adapt the data really to almost every scenario. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. Especially baseball, it's kind of unique because both hitting and fielding are reactionary um, kind of uh, objectives. You know, you, you can only hit based on what you're pitched and you can only field what, you know, is hit to you. Um, pitching, you kind of control that. You, you are able to define a little bit more up front without these external factors, so it's interesting. Um, only other point I'll clarify is, unfortunately, I've never seen any pitch that Mike Trout can't hit. But no, that's That's fair. neither here nor there. That's fair. Um, dude's just a monster. But anyway, with that, let's go ahead and slide into our next topic here. Um, our industry top of the week. This week, we're looking at the energy industry um, and some analytics that came out of that. So what got me started on this was I was reading about this new product that recently came out, I think in the last month. Um, it's a, a BI kind of AI all-in-one data machine learning platform called Power Insight. Um, and what Power Insight does isn't that important um, necessarily what we're talking about. Um, just for reference, what it does is it has a bunch of machine learning. It has a bunch of connections to all these different various data sources that all these energy companies have. Um, it can drive diagnostics. It can run predictive analytics. Um, it does a lot more with forecasting um, than some of the existing tools and models out there. Um, but what was really interesting to me with this is that it seems like um, – just about every month, and especially again, at market scale here, we cover so many different industries. We're very familiar with those industries, specifically in the B2B world. Um, but I'm seeing these new all-in-one analytics, machine learning, big data platforms coming out, um, making it more accessible. Um, and that's something I definitely think when you think of utility companies, um, if you were to you know ask a thousand people, do you think your utility company is ahead of the times or behind the times? I'm betting 999 of those people say behind the times. Um, it's just, especially when we're looking at utilities within the energy sector, um, it's something that's been a little bit 
maybe lagging um, in terms of technological advances, utilizing data, things like that. But platforms like this that come out that their goal is pretty much to, hey, we're going to do all this amazing stuff and we're going to make it really easy on you. You just kind of give us, you know, a line to this, this, this and this. We'll take it from there. Um, And they're doing other things like it's not just forecasting based on energy consumption. Um, obviously a lot of the existing models have weather involved because, um, if, you know, if it's going to be a really, really hot day here in Dallas, um, Reliant and TXU and some of the other local ones know people are going to be cranking up that AC. We're going to need some juice for that. Um, we know that, but what are the, one of the things that I, I it's kind of sound like it was an add in package, but that power insight has is even things like looking at the political leanings of a state and how political spectrums kind of ebbing and flowing into, you know, towards the left or towards the right to incorporate, um, what those kind of factors could have on the energy market and um, uh, looking at, you know, of course, incorporating things like the cost of different natural resources, um, the energy production from solar versus wind versus, you know, uh, fossil fuels, things like that. So it has so many more factors um, than what, frankly, I even would have think about, you know, for an energy forecasting model. Um, it's definitely interesting. Um, and what this really led me to was one specific example, a specific company that I think should uh, probably invest in a platform like this, do a little bit more when it comes to predictive analytics. Um, that is PG&E. So um, for those of you who aren't familiar with PG&E, um, they are the major, one of the major utility companies out there in California. Um, they are the ones that were responsible for some of the big fires last year when their lines went down. They are the ones that a couple weeks ago um, started making some kind of preemptive power cuts because they were worried that their infrastructure wasn't going to hold up to some windstorms coming in and with the dry conditions. Um, and I thought it was really interesting. I also, I, I glanced at some numbers here if you're ready to have your mind blown. So um, turning off power to, you know, a couple localized regions for maybe a few days here and there. Um, obviously, California is heavily populated, but still it wasn't like it was the entire state was in a blackout for months or anything. But just those power cuts that they did, they're estimating $2.5 billion in cost to the state, um, the economy. Um, maybe, you know, if you're looking at liability, maybe you can even tie it back to PG&E. But $2.5 billion for something that seems like a, hey, we're just going to, you know, we just need to temporarily do this to be safe. We'll be good. Um, and oddly, $65 million of that was residential, which implies, obviously, almost all of that is from businesses. Um, one of the things I was reading is how especially the areas hit, there's a lot more um, kind of local, smaller businesses than there are some of the larger national retailers. Um, a lot of Walmarts, for instance, I think have backup generators, things like that. If the power were to get shut down from the grid, they could probably operate for a while without, um, you know, getting hit too, too hard. That mom and pop, you know, bait and tackle shop down the street or whatever, they probably do not have that generator hooked up and they're fully reliant on the grid. Um, so it, it just, it, it kind of blew my mind that, um, this seemingly minor shutoff, this minor preemptive thing that a year ago people were up in arms, you know, why didn't they do this earlier? Why aren't they, if they knew there'd be high winds, they know the grass is dry, they know that, you know, power lines are probably going to go down and start these fires. Why wouldn't they do that? Um, you know, I think it led to something like 30 billion in liabilities in the past from the actual fires themselves. So um, why wouldn't you do this? But even when you're preemptive, it's still costing you a bunch of money. Um, maybe if, uh, they invest in a power on insiders, you know, a, a similar platform, they're going to be able, uh, I think obviously the forecasting, the weather, that's a big piece, but the diagnostics, I think that's probably the bigger piece for them having a very good idea of, um, based on weather, based on the age of it, based on, you know, maybe even like it can measure tension in the power lines or something like that. Um, the likelihood of preventing that, because it's pretty clear that 
Maybe while from the safety side, that is a necessary step. Be preemptive. You don't want to burn down the state. At the same time, there are massive, massive impacts, and this should not be taken lightly. So we should only do this when it is absolutely necessary. Well, look, it is a it's a no win situation here, right? Either you uh, lose thirty billion dollars in liabilities, or you kind of bite the bullet and say, you know, these preventative measures that we are taking is going to keep everybody from spending, you know, bukus of money on, you know forest fires and having to rebuild their house and insurance claims and stuff like that. I think I think the fact that it is a lot of rural shutdowns is is something that we need to touch on a little bit more because yep. you know, it's not a huge deal when um you know, say Dallas for example, right? If if an area or neighborhood loses power, it's a, more than an inconvenience, but it's it's, you know, nothing really shuts down, you know, the traffic lights switch and on and off and turn into stop signs and stuff like that. But rural neighborhoods or rural rural areas, they have maybe one, two grocery stores, yep. one, two mom and pop shops where they get their their meat. And those places go down and these people no longer have uh, accessibility to your milk. Basic resources. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yes. you, you, I mean, obviously you have your dry goods and stuff that store, but, you know, especially for uh, companies that, that their primary purpose, like a butcher, where mm-hmm. everything has to be kept cold for safety reasons. And if it's not, the FDA requires that you throw it out. And, you know, you would talk about, you know, insurance claims. Yes. How about, you know, people not eating and businesses losing entire, uh, stocks of inventory because someone just decided to shut their power off for a couple of days. Right. Because, you know, hey, there may be a windstorm or something like that. So again, yeah, you're absolutely right. The first thing you said there is a no-win situation. Um, I don't envy anyone involved in the situation on either side. Um, but it's just kind of interesting because I think it's uh like everything, there's always two sides to every story. Um if all you're focused on is the well, you know, it, 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 any, you know, any going to any length is worth it to prevent potentially prevent these fires. Of course, we, you know, no, no one's going to sit here and say that, um, you know, no, the fires are good or, you know, oh, don't worry about them. Um, obviously, those are a severe issue. And especially when it's, you know, threatening not only property, but lives. But um, it, it can't be taken lightly. Um, the other angle of this, that there is a significant cost. There are risks. Um, and as you mentioned, there are entire communities that could kind of get um, blasted, uh, you know, and, and really take a step back based on this. So, um, not a good situation. Um, uh, all I can say is I guess it makes sense why more and more Californians keep invading, uh, us down here in Texas, you know, it hey, makes sense. It's, <laughs> it's people analytics. That's exactly right. Oh, Uh-oh. what a Uh-oh. good transition. <laughs> all righty. Um, so let's get into our last story here today. So we're going to talk about people analytics. So, um, this is, again, our general kind of broad analytics story of the week. I just I read a really interesting article this week um, that made me think a, a lot, honestly, about um, a little bit about what we do here at Mark Scale, but definitely some of the past positions I have um, and what I uh, it was being captured, what is being captured. So for those of you who aren't familiar with people analytics, what this is talking about, um, at least in the business sense, is um, the amount of data that you capture and utilize on your workforce. Um, so it's uh, everything from obviously the probably the most old fashioned kind of people analytics metric would be the time cards that, you know, back in the day, everyone punched in, punched out, seeing how many hours they work. That is a very, very low level basic example. Um, but there's some companies that are really kind of pushing the envelope with this. I would venture to say a lot of companies out there um, are doing a lot more of this than they have in the past. But specifically, um, two examples that stuck out, um, Amazon warehouses, um, every worker in there wears a wristband now. 
what that wristband does is it tracks every little thing from their movement to their heart rate to um, uh, how many how many minutes they're spending in different sections of the warehouse or even in the office, you know, in the break room, they go into the bathroom, stuff like that. Um, and it's all about efficiency for them. That's what they're kind of promoting is obviously uh, Amazon's great at utilizing data to make a very efficient system. We've seen that with their um, pretty much everything that they've done, frankly. Um, but another one is Hitachi out of Japan, um, which has something which they're calling a happiness meter, um, which it's, it, it feels a little black mirror-ish. Yeah, it's it's it, that is exactly right. Yeah, it's a, you're, you know it's it's a weird thing, but um, what this does is it actually and again I wish I should have researched a little more. I don't know how it works, but it looks at the mood and engagement of an employee throughout the day um, in order to kind of see. Um, okay, is this person in a state of mind that they're going to be able to be productive? Um, but I'll turn and even more maybe so than that. Is this person in a mindset that they really want to work for our company? They're going to give our company the best. Um, are they? Are there clear indications that maybe this person isn't fully invested in this? Um, we don't necessarily, obviously, want employees that aren't um, kind of uh, invested in what you're doing as a company. But um, what, this opens up uh, again. Those are two little examples, but this opens up a lot of questions, um, especially around ethics and you know, kind of diving into that. So. Where do we have to kind of draw the line? Where should you draw the line? Um, how far can a company kind of push it before it gets too far? Um, because I, I kind of almost broke this down into four layers of how they could use this. So the highest level, just efficiency as a company. Um, maybe this is, I'll, I'll say this is the Google Analytics of people analytics, where it's not personally identifiable. You're not necessarily looking to see what Bob is doing. You're just looking to see, hey, one of our you know folks on the docks here, or whatever it may be, um, how many minutes are they actually spending doing what they should be doing? Um, just from a high level, how can we make our business better? Um, the next level slightly further down, but still positive would be the reward level, I would call it, which is the um, yes, you're using that from a company perspective to automate and make yourself more efficient, but you're also able to um, kind of give positive feedback, positive recognition um, of any employees that are doing a really good job at it. Um, of the Go one step further, um, not fully down the ladder yet, but the next step would be kind of an assess level, which would be your performance review is based on this. Um, it's not necessarily you know punitive in nature, and they're not looking to um, use this in a negative manner towards you, but... This is a metric and a thing that will come into your performance review, you know, at realistically long term, you know, impact your salary, um, impact your position of the company, things like that. And then the last level, the bottom of the barrel here would be what I'll call the punish level. Um, and that level would be the, um, okay, we're using this to identify anyone who spends more than their, you know, hour allotted time at lunch. Um, and now you're going, it's going to be punitive in nature. It's going to... It's going to be used for, um, you know, hand slapping, for lack of a better term. Um, I think that most people would be okay with efficiency. I think most companies are probably at that efficiency level. I think quite a few are probably at the reward level. And again, even though it's personally identifiable at that point tied to an employee, if it's all positive in nature, um, even constructive feedback and constructive criticism, that's in a positive way um, at that assess level. I think a lot of companies do that. But I wonder how just to be perfectly frank, how a company like Amazon spins to all of their warehouse employees all across the world. Oh yeah, no, we aren't using this in a negative manner that could negatively impact your career. It's only going to help, you know, you get better. It's only going to be good for you. Um, but how do you convince someone of that when they're, you're pretty much saying that we're going to put a tracker on you that tracks every little thing that you do while you're at work? It, it's tough. No, it is. It is tough. You're right. I, I think the, the point that we have to make is that 
at least in the U.S., work for the most part is voluntary. Yep. Right? You have a decision whether or not you want to work at Amazon. You And, and, and you sign the paperwork that says that you know that you're going to have this, you know, tracker on and you, you know, release your liability to that. That's, you know, we do talk about ethics. Some companies, you know, maybe can bury the lead on that and not make it as well known that they want to do tracking and data gathering. But it's tough. I mean, you know, there is some level of business obligation and ethics to say, hey, you know, we probably shouldn't be tracking when people are at the bathroom because when people are being tracked at the bathroom, they spend less time in the bathroom, but they get sick more because they drink less water. And, yep. you know, there there are there are long term ramifications to that. But, you know, it's it's tough because if you if you want to work somewhere that, you know, is going to track you like that, then, you know. Maybe the onus is on the employee. Yep, absolutely. And then I think this will eventually, as this technology goes further, the right to work kind of argument, um, you know, text the right to work state, for instance, that's going to tie more and more in here. Um, but the other one other little point that's going to tie in with the last thing, which is our data term of the week here, um, is how are companies actually going to use this data? I think a lot of companies are going to be effectively capturing data. It's pretty easy at this point. Um, how are they going to use it? And are they going to know how to effectively use it? Um, and especially when we look at something like this, where you're collecting a ton of this metadata, a ton of these high-level data points, are you going to know how to segment it and how to actually analyze it, how to break it down? Which leads me to my term of the week, Simpson's paradox. If you don't know what Simpson's paradox is, is it's generally um, when a trend appears in a data set, um, you see from a high level, from an aggregated level. Um, but then when you break the data down into different data sets, into subgroups, um, the trend actually reverses. Um, an example of this from a very high level, a hospital, you're comparing two hospitals, which one is the best um, for you to send your family member to. If you, all you know is from a high level that hospital A has a 90% survival rate and hospital B has an 80%, well, hospital A sounds better. However, if you actually look at things like, okay, how healthy are people when they come into the hospital? Um, what kind of diseases are they coming in with? Um, it can severely impact if you realize that everyone had you know, stage four cancer that walked into B, and 80% came out, whereas 90% that walked into A were all, um, they had, you know, a, a little minor cold, you know, common cold. And now you're looking at those survival rates like, well, wow, no, Hospital B must be pretty freaking awesome. So um, Simpsons Paradox is one of these things that we encourage you to be careful about how you are looking at data, how you are breaking down and segmenting data, and don't necessarily trust an analysis if it's just from a high level or just diving too deep. Well, after with that, um, we appreciate you guys joining us this week. This has been Diving Into Data. Um, thank you to Ben for stepping in and helping me out this week. Absolutely. Awesome. This is TC, and we will see you guys next time. See you.